Well, my name is Ron Cole. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's, uh, again, a joy to uh, welcome all of you here this morning. I want to think about uh, a situation that we find ourselves in with some real regularity. I'm going to suggest it's at least once a day, maybe more often, but, but it's a situation we find ourselves in pretty regularly, and, and I want you to think about how we respond in this kind of a situation. What I'm talking about is we hear about or read about or see someone who did something wrong. Right, I mean, it, we, just, we just see this, like I say, on a daily basis. It might be on a headline in the newspaper or on a, a website or something. Uh, here's one I ran across a couple of weeks ago. Man steals $100 from toddler at Walmart. That's true. That's true. If you're wondering how that happens, what happened is a, a mom had her a toddler in the, car, the, the seat of the cart, and, and she got her stuff, and she put down a $100 bill, and the, the other person didn't pick it up right away. Uh, the clerk didn't pick it up right away, and so the toddler did. And the toddler's holding on to this $100 bill. Guy walks past, grabs a $100 bill, and just walks right out the door. Talk about taking candy from a baby. It's even better. You're taking a $100 bill. But how do you react when you hear that? What are your thoughts? What, what, what do you do? Sometimes it's, it's somebody confesses something to us. Maybe somebody who lost their job says, I lost my job. And it was because I lied on my resume. I, I, I puffed some things up about my education. I puffed some things up about what I had done. I, I lied about that, and they caught me, and, and, and now I've lost my job. What do you do? How, how do you react to that? Maybe it's something you see, okay? I mean, you see somebody um, lose it in a, in a restaurant or, uh, you know, and, and just yell at somebody else. Yeah, maybe it's at McDonald's, and it's like, what do you mean? The Happy Meals are now three ninety-seven. They've gone up a quarter. This is ridiculous. And, and the person just loses it and is screaming about, about the cost of a Happy Meal. And, and you just go, oh, I'm so embarrassed for that person. Right? I mean, they do that. Or, or somebody's at Myers, and it's like, you know, I, I mean, your, your bananas are all, are all bruised. This is terrible. And they just get mad, and, they, and you see that. How do you react? How, how do you respond to that? Or sometimes it's kind of secondhand. My friend caught her husband with a lot of porn on his computer, and she doesn't know what to do. All right, that, that happens to us regularly. We, we all have times where we hear about, see, or uh, just read about somebody who's done something wrong. And like I said, what I want to think about is, is what are our initial reactions? What are our first thoughts? Now, if we're honest, probably for many of us, one of our thirst, first thoughts might well be, I have got to tell so-and-so about this. She is going to flip out when she hears this one. This is just, oh, man, I can't wait to tell him. He is going to be, it is just going to be so fascinating. Can I just suggest that 99.999% of the time that's sin and we ought to just, like, drop it? Don't do that. You don't need to tell anybody else about it. Better is maybe to think about saying, what can I do to help the victim? I mean, if I'm there and this poor woman is now out 100 bucks, this guy's run off, do I say, I'll just pay for your groceries? Do I give her a $20 bill, right? We have that sense. If, if somebody's been yelling at the person at McDonald's, we might go up and say, you know what, you're doing a fine job. Just relax. We care for the, the victim. We care for the person who's been hurt, right? I mean, when we see something do something wrong, we feel bad for the person if, if there's somebody who's been hurt. We might also ask, uh, you know, well, what can I do or what should I do or should I do anything about the wrongdoer? Uh, maybe you run after the guy. But, but, but maybe we're in a position to confront. Maybe the person is broken, you know what I mean? is telling us, I, I lied on my resume, I can't believe that was so stupid. And we have to start helping them and supporting them and encouraging them. But there's one more question, and this is the one I really want us to get to. And, and it's one that you might not think you actually ask, but I think almost all the time, somewhere in our subconscious mind, somewhere in the back of our minds, we ask this question, could I do that? Could, could, could I have done that? Could I have, could I have 
done what that person did? Could I have stolen $100 from a child? Could I have done that? You might say, well, Ron, I don't actually think that. I've never asked myself that question. But I want to suggest that you answer it more often than even ask it. That, that, that when you hear that, my guess is some of you responded already. I know I did when, when, I, when I read that headline saying I would never do that, right? I, I would never do that? How could anybody do that? How could, and, and what we're really, you know, kind of saying that could, we, we almost immediately put ourselves in that position of, is this something I could imagine doing? I, I just can't imagine doing something like that. That's ridiculous. I would never, ever do that. And, and there might be a number of reasons. I mean, one of the reasons we might say I would never do that is because that thing just doesn't tempt me. I, I've got a cousin. Um, she's a little older than I am. But I don't know if she was born without taste buds, but she only eats to stay alive. She faces no temptation to overeat. She faces no temptation to just eat six dozen chocolate cookies, chocolate chip cookies at one time. And, and she's skinny and healthy, and I hate her guts. <laughs> I don't. She's wonderful. But it's like for her to say what's tempting to me, she's, apparently she's not tempted by it. And I think she's going to get taste buds back in heaven or something. But apparently food just doesn't do for her what it does for some of you. And, I mean, I'm kind of on her side of things. But, you know, I mean, so some things, you know, you say, I, I, alcohol just tastes terrible to me. I, smoke, it doesn't appeal to me. I, some things, so, so sometimes we say, I'd never do that. And, and it's because that doesn't tempt me, all right? Sometimes we say that because we say, you know what, I've made commitments. I, 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 it's wrong, I just do the right thing. I mean, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I just have made a commitment, and that's not the kind of person I am, so I'm never going to do those things. I would not lie on my resume. I would not steal $100 from a toddler. I wouldn't steal $100 from anybody. I live with integrity, and those things are wrong, and I would never do those things. Or we'd say, you know what? I know it. It might be tempting, but look, I've got a plan. I'm never going to have an affair because this is how I set things up at work. I never find myself alone with a, a female person. I never find myself... And so I, I know how I'm going to handle that. If I'm tempted to do this, I'm going to do that. If I'm tempted, I'm going to do that. And, and we come and we say, okay, I've got a plan. And, 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 and so somewhere, I think, for many of us, and it's not all bad, okay? For somewhere inside, for many of us, we have that sense of saying, you know what? When we hear somebody who did something, say, I, I just wouldn't do that. But the question that I think Jesus wants us to ask this morning is a really difficult one. Because I think what Jesus wants us to do is is upset us a little bit. And he wants us to ask, should we be so sure? Should we be so confident? On the one hand, confidence is good, right? On the other hand, I made these commitments, I'm strong, I'm not going to give in to this. But on the other hand, on the other hand, are we really being honest about our hearts? Are we really being honest about what we're capable of? You see, this morning, I want to suggest that these words, I would never do that, that these words are in some ways some of the most dangerous words we can speak. And we're going to see a story about Jesus and his disciples that challenges us to recognize that. Again, we're in this series, we're calling it Questions of the Last Week, and we've been looking at different questions, either one Jesus asks or others ask. And this morning, it's going to be one that the disciples ask of Jesus a question that they ask of Jesus. So the setting is this. Jesus and his disciples are gathered together. It's the Thursday night, okay? It's the Thursday night in the week that Jesus was crucified. So this is the night before he is crucified. This is the night that he's going to be betrayed. If you were with us last week, we're actually jumping back a few hours. We were in the garden last week. We're jumping back to the, to the supper, okay? 
Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem, and they're in what we call the upper room, and they're celebrating the Passover together. And, and, and for the most part, it was a time of joy, okay? The Passover for the Israel people, Israelite people was, uh, was a time of, uh, it's like the 4th of July. It was Independence Day. It was the day of celebration that God had taken the people of, of God out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And so this was the 4th of July. This was celebration. This was good news. This was all of that stuff. Now, for the disciples and for Jesus, it was a little more somber than that. The disciples knew something was up. They didn't know what was going to happen when, but they knew something was up. Jesus knows that this is one of his last days on earth before he's crucified. And, and, and so there is a sense of seriousness there, but it is also is, it's a time of family gathering, all right? These disciples have walked with Jesus for three years now. They've been through good times, they've been through bad times, but they have been together and they have walked with Jesus. And Jesus drops a bombshell. I want you to recognize that, that, that what Jesus says here just, boom, explodes over everything. They'd gathered together. John tells us that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He gave some teaching and so on. Later on, he's going to give the words of the, what we call the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. But what he says here just kind of just threw everybody off, okay? Just knocked everybody off their feet. Matthew 26, verse 20, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. Again, they'd be laying down and, and gathered around this table. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, got big news here. One of you will betray me. I mean, just stop and think about that. The disciples knew there were people who wanted to kill Jesus. He knew they had enemies out there, but he'd always been out there. We were the team. We were each other. And all of a sudden, for Jesus to say, one of you, one of you, one of you gathered right here with me right now, one of you who has walked with me for three years, one of you is going to turn me over. One of you is going to betray me. And it was just like, for, I mean, the disciples just had to be in shock. To think that this was inside of them, to think that this was one of them. It's one thing to recognize there are bad people out there, right? I mean, we all know that. There are bad people in this community and, and, and so on. But to say one of you will betray me changes everything. They were very sad, deeply disappointed, deeply disturbed is another translation there. They were, they were troubled. And, and all of a sudden, this meal, again, I, I don't often think about the, just the upset and, 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 and what it would have done to them, but just, just to be there and imagine what it went through. That, again, the, the, my guess is there, the process was no way. No way. That's not going to happen. We've been through enough. We know. None of us, I mean, you might get taken. We all might get killed, but, but none of us are going to help them out there. None of us are going to help your enemies. No way. But he's never been wrong. And so you start to just ask, who? Which one? And, and just imagine the looks around the table at that minute, right? At that moment when, when it's like all of a sudden they're all looking at each other. Uh, you have a team. Coach never says, by the way, one of you is going to blow this ball game, right? Because all of a sudden nobody trusts each other. I mean, this is really disturbing. Which one of these guys? Is it going to be Matthew? I mean, he had been a tax collector. He'd worked for the Romans before. Maybe he never got it out of his system. Is it going to be Peter? I and mean, Peter always out in front, always the first one to do everything. Is he also going to be the first one to betray? Is that who it's going to be? Or is it going to be Thomas? I mean, he never seems 100% sure on anything. Who's it going to be? 
and you're just looking around. I mean, imagine, again, if I were to say, one of you in here today is going to kill somebody by the end of the day. Would you not, like, go, whoa, are you serious? Who is it? It's got to be Andy. No, I'm just... <laughs> Who is it? And then, and then finally stopping and saying, me? I mean, <laughs> I, I would never... <laughs> I would never betray him. Would I? Would I? I, I, I mean, you got to understand, this is, this is just the agony. They, they were so very sad. They were deeply disturbed. And, and they began to say one after another, all right? They began to say to him, one after the other, surely, surely you don't mean me, Lord. You can't be talking about me. We don't know whether this was like boom, 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 each one after the other said it or if it was over the course of a couple of minutes. But it had to have some time of discontent here for each and every one of them. Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And, and the way this is phrased is so interesting because it's really close. It's close to a declaration. I would never do that. You're not talking about me. But there's still that question, are you? Are you? Could it be me? And, and here's two things that I really want you to catch and I, and I think are important for us to recognize. Jesus does this deliberately. Jesus disturbs the disciples deliberately. You know, I say he would never do that. He loves them. Oh, guess what? Sometimes he needs to disturb us. Sometimes he needs to knock us around a little bit. Sometimes he needs to knock us off our feet a little bit. And I think that's exactly what he wants to do to the disciples. He didn't have to say any of this. Didn't have to say anything to everybody. He could have just gone to Judas. Judas is the one who's going to betray him most clearly. He could have just gone to Judas and said, I know what you're going to do. But somehow he does this knowing that he's going to upset all of the disciples, knowing that they're all going to be a little bit more on edge. They're all going to be a little bit more nervous. And the question we're going to ask is, why would he do that? But first I want you to notice that not only does he do this, he, he doesn't quickly rescue the disciples from the struggles. Again, we might want to say, well, okay, Jesus, you know, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Oh, yeah, I should make it clear. It's not you, 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 it's, it's you. It's, it's Judas, okay? I just want to make that clear. I shouldn't have, no. Jesus, Jesus answers them in a really ambiguous way. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The one who has, not who is right now, not who's going to in five seconds, but the one who has. You wonder what the problem is? They've all dipped in the bowl with Jesus. They, they, they've all done that. <laughs> My guess is none of them could remember. It's like, did I do that tonight? Is he talking about tonight? The, Jesus doesn't let anybody off the hook here. In fact, he, he, he makes it deeper. He says, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then we get to Judas, the one who would betray him. He says, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Interesting, it's almost exactly the same words. Did you catch the difference? What the other disciples said was, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, because Rabbi is a good title. People who love Jesus call him Rabbi. He is teacher. He is the one who is, is a brilliant leader. He's a, a discipler. And so to call him a rabbi is not wrong. But I just wonder if Matthew isn't alerting us to something here about, about that word. And, and I wonder if he isn't saying to us, be really careful that you don't just treat Jesus like a great teacher. If all he is is a rabbi, then you can betray him. But if he is a Lord, 
you're going to do everything in your power not to do that. Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And again, Jesus doesn't say yes. <laughs> Look at what he says. Jesus answered, you have said so. Well, so is everybody else. Everybody else had said basically the same thing, just one word different, and that would not... And, and, and so Jesus, I think, again, is deliberately disturbing his disciples. The disciples are, are deeply disturbed by what Jesus says, and, and this is kind of where it ends. I mean, obviously, at some point, they know that Judas is the one who betrays. Obviously, at some point, they realize that that's what's happening. But for a time, Jesus wants them confused and struggling and doubting themselves. I just think that's absolutely what he wants. So why? Why does Jesus disturb the disciples? Not because he was angry at them. That's me and maybe you. If I'm going to suffer, I want you to suffer. I want you to feel what I'm going to feel. I'm going to make you feel lousy about yourselves. I want you guys to have a struggle. you got no idea what I'm going to go through. Well, I'm going to start your pain right now. Jesus wasn't angry at him. He wasn't disappointed with him. Just to say, look, I'm not going to worry about you guys because i got plenty and you're not worried about me. I want to suggest that Jesus disturbs them and Jesus wants us to be disturbed because he loves us. Because he loves us. It's interesting. Sometimes we say, well, you know, I I, I get this. um, My my mother-in-law, I'll pick on her a little bit, but, you know, when she says, well, whenever I go to talk to somebody, she'll say, well, did you make them feel better? And sometimes I say, no. She said, well, that's not good. You have to make them feel better. You're the pastor. And I said, well, I think sometimes Jesus doesn't want us to feel better. She didn't ever get that. <laughs> now she doesn't get anything, sorry. But <laughs> Jesus does this out of love. You see, there are two things I think Jesus wants us to know. The first one is this. Jesus wants us to know we are not as strong or good as we think we are. Jesus wants us to know that we are not as strong or as good as we think we are. That one of the most dangerous things we can have is self-confidence. Now, again, on the one hand, I like confidence. On the other hand, I think it's great. We need that. And, and we, we created God's image. There's all sorts of reasons to have a good confidence. But to have confidence in myself is so dangerous because then I start to rely on myself. Then I start to depend on myself. Then I start to think, I can do this myself. And so when we are saying, I would never do that, if we are saying it because I have the strength to say no, because I don't do anything wrong, because I'm not a liar, because I'm not a steel thief, because I'm not a racist, when we say, I would never do that, we have to ask ourselves, is it because we're believing too much in ourselves? And it's really dangerous if we start to do that. 1 Corinthians, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 and 12. In the first part of this chapter, Paul is going through uh, some Old Testament history. The people of God in the Old Testament, Israel. Paul is going through and he's saying, you know what? They blew it here, and they blew it here, and they blew it here, and they blew it here. And he's not saying, I'm so glad you're not like that. You want to know why he tells them about those mistakes? Why those sins, those failures on the part of the people of God? He says, these things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. We now live in Christ. But these things are a warning to us. These things are a warning to us. They they were God's people. They had seen God's presence in ways you and I never have. I mean, in the Old Testament, to see the pillar of cloud and the fire and all that stuff, and, and to know God's presence, to have walked through with God all the plagues and the Passover and all of these things, and yet they immediately forgot it, and they didn't trust God, and they failed. 
Paul says, those things are not examples of somebody who's weaker than you. They're examples of who we are apart from Christ. When we start to depend on our own power. And then he says these words, so if you think you are standing firm. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And and I think what Paul is saying is that the one most likely to fall might well be the one who doesn't think she is capable of it. The one who thinks she never will. I I tell you this, I've had the opportunity to talk as a pastor, to talk with people who have struggled in a lot of different ways. I've been down to the Kent County Jail any number of times, other prisons in the system. And and there's always one thing that scares me when somebody says, oh, I'll never do that again. I'll I'll never do that again. I'm thinking, I'm going to visit you again in a few years here. Because if you just are convinced you'll never do it again. That's why Alcoholics Anonymous, right? They, don't, they teach you to, not to say, oh, I was an alcoholic, right? You ever listen to that? Alcoholics Anonymous, I am an alcoholic. I'm a sinaholic. I'm an alcoholic because I know that any time I can fall. I know that any time when I start to, to depend on myself, I can fall. And, and, and again, so the guy who says, look, I had that affair. It's never going to happen again. You know, on the one hand, I want to say, yeah, I hope it never does. But to be aware of it and to say, by the grace of God, I pray that never happens again. There is such a difference. And, and, and so what I want to challenge us to try to learn to do is not to become obsessed with how bad we are, but to recognize how weak we are. To recognize that we're not as strong as we think we are. powerful picture of this occurred a number of years ago. Um, some of you may have heard about some of this stuff, but Adolf Eichmann, that name might be familiar to some of you, he was the, the mastermind of the Holocaust. I mean, he was the guy in Nazi Germany who basically took it upon himself to get rid of whatever it was, 6 million Jews and 3 million others. I mean, 9 million people. He set up Auschwitz. He set up all of these things. He was the mastermind behind all of that. You might know, excuse me, you might know that Eichmann was not captured at the end of World War II. He escaped. And he was actually captured by uh, the Israelis 18 years later. I think it was either Argentina or Brazil. It was someplace in South America. He was captured 18 years later, and he was brought back to Israel for trial. One of the people who spoke at that trial was a guy by the name of Yehiel Dinur. He was a survivor of Auschwitz. He had been there, and he had seen Eichmann at Auschwitz, when Eichmann was, the, in a sense, the god. When he was the one who was deciding, you go this way and you die, you go this way and you live. And Dinur was one who survived. And so they called on him to testify at this trial 18 years later. And as he's there... As he's there, and there's video of this if you want to look it up. As he's there, as he's talking, after a couple of minutes, he looks at Eichmann, and he collapses. He falls off his chair. He falls on the ground. People have to go, and they lift him up, and they they take him. But he, he just absolutely collapses. Several years after that, Mike Wallace, 60 Minutes, is interviewing him. And he said, why did you collapse? Assuming that it was to see the face of evil that clearly. Assuming it was to see somebody that powerful and evil and horrible, and this is what Dinur said. He said, when I saw Eichmann, I realized that he was just a man, just like me. There was really no difference. I was capable of the very thing that he did, and I collapsed because I saw my reflection in him. Check yourself right now. If you're like me, you're saying, yeah, but I could still never do what Eichmann did. (laughs) I would never do that. And I'd like to believe that's true. But part of what Denur is saying to us, part of what Jesus is saying to us, is don't overestimate yourself, friends. You have no idea. 
Jesus wants us to know that when we think we can stand strong, it might not be the case. Jesus wants us to know that we're not as good as we think we are. And, and, and we say, you know what, I just don't lie. Listen to a, a TED talk a couple of weeks ago. And it wasn't a Christian talk, but it was somebody who had spent her entire life studying lying. And she said that the studies are very clear, very consistent, that one out of every three interactions, not just one out of every three statements, but one out of three times that you talk with somebody, you've told a lie. If you have three meetings with people, at least in one of them, you will have told a lie. Now, the good news is if you're married, it goes up to one in ten. So your spouse is telling you it's 90% of the time. Now, again, most of us are saying, oh, I do better than that. Friends, we are so weak. We are so prone to sinfulness. We are so prone to lying and to taking. And you say, well, I'd never take candy from a baby. I'd never take a $100 bill from a toddler. Well, what if your kids hadn't eaten in three days? Don't tell me. If your kids haven't eaten in three days, that you would just morally walk past that $100 bill. I gotta wonder if indeed I would do that. The fact of the matter is, there is something wrong with us. And it's deep in the core of who we are. And we need to recognize that. Now, I think it could be helpful for us to, to fight against that, to say, you know, where am I most vulnerable? What, what, what are the things that I'm most tempted by? Again, there are different things. And, 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 and the way, one of the ways to ask that is to ask these two questions. What do I most want? What most tempts me? I mean, that's sometimes where it is. It's, it's, there's something that we don't have that we want. Maybe it's money, maybe it's power, maybe it's control, maybe it's prestige, whatever it is. But we want that. I want to suggest that for Judas, the Bible gives us a pretty clear indication that it's at least a big part of it was greed. 30 pieces of silver. He wanted more. And he was willing to do something he would have sworn he never would have done before in order to get 30 pieces of silver. So what, what do I most want? But then also, what do I most fear? What, what, what do I most fear? And I think for a lot of us, this is what really is where we compromise more is because we're afraid. We're afraid of losing something. We're afraid that, 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 that we're going to lose our reputation or we're going to get hurt or something like that's going to happen. This is the way the other disciples failed. They, they weren't actively trying to get something. They were just afraid. They all were going to run away from Jesus. And I think of how many times I fail to step in and love because I'm afraid. I think of how many times I see something that's wrong and I just say it's not my deal. Or somebody who needs help and I just say it's not my deal. I'm not as good as I think I am. Jesus wants us to know that. But that's only part of it, please. Stick with me here, because next is important. There's one reason why Jesus wants us to know that, okay? Jesus wants us to know that we're not as strong or as good as we think we are. Why? So that we can learn to depend on him. So that we run to him. So that we put our lives in his hands. So that we discover that he is our strength. And and what I cannot do on my own, by God's grace, I can begin to do. And and, and that's what the disciples, uh, that's why, you know, Daniel talked about last week with, with the disciples in their failure to pray in their failure to run to Jesus in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. I, I, again, we're all that way. But I think it's, it's part of that is what's saying, you guys are trying to stand on your own. Jesus knows that they're going to fail, and he wants to say, you've got to hide yourself in me. You've got to put yourself in me because I'm strong enough, and I'm big enough, and the life of Christ now lives in us. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, we can really start to de- become the people that God wants us to become. 
And, and what Jesus wants to do is, is to when we're standing too much on our own, he wants to knock us over so that we crawl back and we know that he forgives us and he lifts us up and we experience his grace once again. Jesus does not want to hurt the disciples. Jesus does not want to hurt you. Jesus does not want to hurt me. And so he's trying to save us here. You know, he's trying to save me here. He's trying to say, Ron, be really careful. You may feel like you're on a good track. You may feel like you're doing things well. As a church, we may feel like we're on a good track. We're going to go break ground. But friends, we got to be really careful. We got to be really careful. That it, that it won't take much to turn this whole church in on itself, to make it just about ourselves, for us to be the most selfish church there ever was possible. It, friends, we're capable of it. Which is why we must come back to Jesus again and again and again and say, fill me, Lift, live in me, raise me. I am dead, but, but you are alive. And, and that's what we celebrate on Easter, that, that we don't have to stand on our own two feet. Jesus wants us to know you're not as strong as you think you are, but the good news is that's okay because he is strong enough. He is strong enough and he can carry us through and he can give us the strength to follow him and and to forgive us when we fail. As I wrap this up, there's a children's song that maybe some of you have already had in the back of your mind, but it's the one that I think captures what Jesus wants us to know here. And it's Jesus loves me. I'm not going to sing it, but you know it. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Little ones. Little ones like Ron and little ones like each one of you. Little ones to him belong. We are weak. But he is strong. And, and so we go out of here not afraid, but aware. Okay? Aware that we need Jesus aware that he's there with us, aware that every day I want to say, God, give me the strength to walk through this day. Let's pray together. Father, we have an amazing ability to say we would never do anything like that because we are good people. Father, in Christ we are good, but remind us that we are weak. Father, remind us Break down our our arrogance, not to hurt us, but so that we might find security and safety in you and in you alone. Teach us, teach us to to be confident, not self-confidence, but God-confidence. Confidence in you, Lord. Teach us to surrender. Teach us to give ourselves to you. Teach us to be humble. Humble not in a hating ourselves way, but humble in a way of saying, we are weak, but Lordy, 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 you are strong. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.